Good morning, everybody. I pray you are doing well this morning. Uh, if you and I have not met before, uh, my name is Adam Radcliffe. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word for us this morning. I do count it a privilege and a joy, but we are glad to be worshiping with you. That was Jake Patton who is leading us in worship this morning. Well, we're going to be in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, If you don't, we also have the passage printed for you in the bulletin. But we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning. But before we take a look at those, we have a couple Sundays here this week and next uh, before we launch into our next sermon series on the book of Colossians. And so this week, as I was thinking about and praying about what text to preach on, about what might be helpful to us as we close the chapter on one year and start a new one. I wanted us to hear what the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians in Thessalonica because it's something that I'm praying for myself and it's something that I'm praying for you as we move into 2018. You know, as we transition into a new year, there's nothing magical, right, about when the clock strikes 12 tonight. Nothing magical about that, that all the problems and trials of 2017 will just magically disappear and not come into 2018. That's just not how life works, and we all know that. But there is, I think, something significant about the yearly rhythm and repetition of looking back on one year with all that it held out to us while also looking ahead to a new year with all of its potential that at least in some ways is a paradigm for the Christian life. If you think about it, as Christians, we are always looking back to the first advent of Jesus, which we just celebrated, the incarnation and all that it means for us, the good news that you and I love to celebrate, while also looking ahead to the second advent when Jesus comes again to make all things new. And that both of these things, Jesus has come and he's coming again, that both of these things, past and future, are meant to shape the way we live in the present, today, here and now. So we're not really transitioning away from Advent this morning, from the incarnation. You know, like Christmas is over, Jesus was born, so let's start talking about joining a gym now. You know, that's not what we're doing. We're not turning away from Advent. We're embracing it, that we're living in the glow of it. We're saying that because it is the greatest news in all the world, that Jesus has come and that he is coming again, that it changes everything including us, that as we continue to look to Jesus, as Paul says in Corinthians, as we continue to look to Jesus, that we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so our desire, our prayer is to reflect the beauty and the worth of Jesus in our marriages in our neighborhoods, neighborhoods and how we go about our work and how we respond to adversity when it comes into our lives and how we engage with the Bible and worship and on and on. We believe that change, 
that looking more like Jesus is possible only because the Holy Spirit is at work within us, transforming us from the inside out. That that is how change is possible. And so New Year's is a great time for us to be thinking about this because almost intuitively now, because there's such a rhythm to it, that we check our pulse this time of year, don't we? That we push pause and we take stock on how we are doing and what we're living for and what matters most in life, what needs to change. And a lot of us take up resolutions as a result of that. Now, I don't know how many of you make resolutions or what your philosophy on that is. We're probably a house divided. But for those of us who do make them, New Year's or otherwise, why do we do it? There could be a whole host of reasons, and some of them really good reasons, and some of them really bad reasons. Motives can be really distorted, and we all know that. But I think the impulse underneath that is driving it is a good and a biblical one, and here's why. It's because Christian or non-Christian, when we think about a new year, we think about a new season of life, and we take an honest look at things, we look in the mirror, there's this underlying awareness that we know we haven't arrived yet. That there's still room for us to grow. There's still more that can be done. And so we set out to be more intentional, more purposeful than we have in the past. And I think that impulse is a good one if it's applied to the right things. And that's key because I think that's what Paul is encouraging here in our passage. Because the people that he is writing to, they believe the gospel. They love the gospel. They got their roots down deep in their union with Christ. And they are bearing fruit in visible and practical ways. That they are looking back to the first advent and anxiously awaiting the second when Jesus comes to make all things new. And Paul wants that to be the fuel that ignites them. They look back to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross And they look ahead to the reward that is Jesus in the life to come, that he wants that to be the fuel that ignites them, that compels them to live out their faith in radical, intentional, practical ways for the glory of Christ and the good of others, even more than they had already been doing. That they would make resolutions that would help their faith to grow, that would help their love for one another to increase and for their hope to endure by relying daily on God's grace through faith in his power for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he's praying for them to that end. And so I want us to think about it this morning as a prayer for the new year. That as we look back while looking ahead, that God would do for us what Paul is praying that he would do for them. And that this time next year, as a church, we'll look back and see all the ways in which God has answered our prayer through our good resolves, both as individuals and collectively as a church. All right, that's a long lead up to our past. Let me read these two verses and then we will dive in. Again, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, 
To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, I need your help. We need your help now. I pray that you would keep me faithful to your word and that you would open our eyes and our ears to receive it. That we would glory much in Christ this morning. We pray it in his beautiful name. Amen. Those who know me fairly well or have heard me talk really at any length about theology or ministry have, I'm sure, heard me reference a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a well-known pastor and theologian and prolific writer um, here in America in the 1700s. God used him mightily in the first great awakening in this country. And I mentioned him here this morning because early on in his ministry, even before he became a full-time pastor, he wrote down 70 resolutions that he would read through every week. And he wanted God to help him to keep them. And I don't read them weekly as a confession, but I, I do find myself you know, every year around this time of year, again, one of those yearly rhythm things of reading through those resolutions just because I love Edward's desire to live for the glory of God in all things. And I love his desire to seek the good of others, to love others. And so I, I mention his resolutions in particular, not only because it's New Year's, but because I think they illustrate what Paul is really getting at here in our text. And you'll notice the, the quote on the front of your bulletin, but Edwards begins by confessing that left to himself, he can't actually keep them, which a lot of us can relate to, right? Those of us who've made resolutions. Listen to what he says. He says, being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So in other words, he knows that he can't do anything without God's help. And he can write as many resolutions as he wants, but unless God helps, won't be able to keep them. That grace must always be underneath supporting and enabling him. He's not trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps to earn God's favor. And he wants everything that he does from eating and drinking to how he talks about other people when they're not around to be aimed at Christ's glory and the good of others. So with that kind of thinking in mind, with that framework in mind, here's how I wanna approach our passage this morning. First, I want us to look at what Paul is praying for. Like what exactly is he asking God to do in the Thessalonians? And then how? How will what he's praying actually be accomplished in them practically, on the ground level, in their lives, in their relationships? How will it be accomplished? And then third, why is Paul praying for this? What's he after? 
What's the goal of all of it? So that's where we're headed this morning. But before we look at what he's praying, let me give us some context because we're jumping in mid-chapter here. The Christians, the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica were facing adversity and persecution because of their faith. And Paul is wanting to encourage them by reminding them that Jesus is coming back. And that when he does, he is going to repay all those who have afflicted them while granting relief to those who have been afflicted. That in the end, there will be justice in the world. That all will be made right. That all will be worth it. That following Jesus in this life will be totally worth it. Because in the verse just prior to ours, in verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He's telling them that on that day when Jesus returns that he will be glorified in his saints. And he will be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, I want us to stop there for a minute and think about this. Because this is the vision that Paul wants them to be captivated by as they seek to live out their faith in the real world when the rubber meets the road. And it's this. It's going to give direction. It's going to give meaning and inspiration to them. It's this. Is that when we see Jesus in all of his glory, shining like the sun, our response on that day will not be, uh, that's it? I thought you'd be more impressive than that or more awe-inspiring. That will not be our response on that day. When we see Jesus in all of his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, our jaws will drop, our knees will quiver, our tongues will confess, you are totally worth it. You are totally worth it. That there is nothing in the universe more beautiful, more compelling, more excellent than you who are both the lamb who was slain and the lion who reigns. You who are meek and majestic, that you who are the suffering servant and the all-satisfying savior, the whole scope of what the Bible says about who Jesus is, on that day we will be overwhelmed with wonder and amazement and we will marvel that such a God would love people like you and me. And we will glorify him for it forever. And we will be glorified with him because we will see him as he is. So in light of that day, Paul says, here's what I'm praying for you today. I want you to keep that reality in your mind. And let it shape the way you live right now. Because being captivated by the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. It shapes you. It changes you. It reorients you to what really matters in life. And here's what I'm praying, Paul says. Two things. First, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that he may fulfill every resolve for good 
and every work of faith. Let's look at these one at a time. First, what does it mean for God to make us worthy of his calling? Because here's what we know. We know, right, that our salvation, that our calling from start to finish is all pure gift. It's gift. That there is nothing that we could do to put God in our debt or to tip the scales in our favor or to make and keep enough resolutions that would make him like us more We have been saved by grace through faith, Paul says in Ephesians. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And why is it not a result of works? Why is it not a result of works? Because if we could earn or work our way to God, then we would have reason to boast. Because we could say that we contributed something to our own salvation, but the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and incapable of doing anything to merit God's kindness. But still, so many of us in this room who trusted in Christ alone for salvation We still fight the temptation to make salvation, which is by grace alone, salvation by grace and my grit alone. By my resolution keeping or my goodness, which is no salvation at all, it's only slavery. So what then does Paul mean here by being made worthy? Because he doesn't mean that we become deserving of it. But here's some help. In his first letter, he says something very similar. I think it helps answer the question here. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, We exhorted each one of you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here's the idea. For us to walk or to live in a manner that's worthy of God. That if we believe that he is glorious and beautiful and totally worth it, that he's deserving of all praise and obedience, which he is, then we who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of death into life, out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of heaven, not because of anything that we have done or will do or could do, but exclusively because of what Jesus has done for us and our being united to him by faith, that our desire and aim will be to live a life that reflects more clearly back to him his worth and his glory. Do you see the difference there? The emphasis is on God's worthiness, not our own. His value and not our merit. The glory of his calling and kingdom, not our being deserving of it. In other words, Paul is praying that there would not be this huge disconnect between what we say we believe with our mouths about who Jesus is, about the gospel, about what we say we believe and how we actually live. That there wouldn't be this huge disconnect in us. But as our roots get down deeper into gospel soil, that our lives, 
how we talk to one another and about one another and how we act and what we value and what we give ourselves to would bear more and more gospel fruit that in looking to Jesus, that fixing our gaze on him, that we would begin to look more and more like Jesus, that, he, that we would love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. That, that is our calling, and it is a glorious one. Paul is praying for God to do that work in them, that God would fulfill it. That's the first thing. The second thing that he's praying for is that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, which is really him just showing how God is making us worthy and more like Jesus. It is through our daily trusting, our daily moment by moment trusting in his power and grace to do what we can't do on our own. It's through our believing and treasuring the gospel as we purpose and resolve to do good and make Jesus look great. And when you read through both letters to the Thessalonians, one thing you'll quickly learn is that Paul loves these people. He loves them because he sees the hands of Jesus all over them, that they love and treasure the gospel. And we know that in verses three and four of this chapter, he's thanking God for them. He's thanking God for them for three primary things. He says, because their faith is growing abundantly. Their love for one another is increasing. And their hope in the midst of adversity and suffering is enduring. And the question is, how does Paul know that? How does he know those things are true? One answer is he knows it because those things, those virtues of faith, hope, and love are visible that they can be seen and experienced in people's lives, that tangible needs are being met in the church family, that Jesus is being trusted in all circumstances, that people are being loved well, that that people are sacrificing for other people, that the gospel is going out from among them. And he says the same thing at the beginning of his first letter, He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, for your work of faith, your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope. And I wish we can get into those, but Paul here in our passage is praying for more and more of that in their lives. More faith, more love, more hope that they would have resolves for good things, for Christ exalting, God honoring things. And that those resolves would become works of faith. And not as some add-ons to their faith to make them deserving of the grace that's been given to them. But as the natural expression, the overflow, the result of a living and abiding, trusting and resting in the person and work of Jesus. That it can't help but go public. That it can't help but be lived out in visible and tangible and radical ways for the glory of God and the good of others. That when you squeeze them, that it just comes out of them. 
So I just want us to see this morning that they have resolutions, that they want to see some change, some good come about, that they're being intentional, that they're putting strategies and plans in place. And they're doing it so that their hope and their faith in God would continue to grow, that their hearts wouldn't grow cold and dull and hard. That their, that their hope in the midst of a lot of adversity, and if I look across this room, I know some of you are facing a lot of adversity and pain. You don't know what the future's looking like. But they're resolving to increase their hope in the midst of adversity. They want to believe the gospel over against all the false gospels and narratives around them. They don't want to be drifters and lulled off to sleep as they await Jesus' return. So Paul is praying that those resolves that begin as a desire for some good thing, and whether that's to be more intentional about loving neighbors or to give more freely of your time and money, or to walk alongside people who are suffering and sad, or to read God's word more consistently, as those things would be put into action, that faith would have feet and become works brought about by a living and abiding faith in Jesus. The question then is how? We've looked at at what Paul is praying, but how will that actually happen in them, in us? How will we be made worthy of his calling? How will our resolves for good that we have to be more generous, to give more away, to be more sacrificial, to grow in our love for God and his word, to be faithful where we've been planted in life, to see real change come about this year? The answer is left to ourselves, they won't. That left to ourselves, we can't and won't change. Left to ourselves with all of our resolutions and all of our plans and all of our intentions, we will try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps every single time and think God owes us something because of it or think he hates us when we fail. But Paul is showing us a better way. Again, remember, he is praying for them. He's asking God to do this work. He's asking and trusting God to work in them because he knows that they and we can't do it. He says, may God make you worthy. May God fulfill these resolves. In other words, you can't do it in your own strength. You can't generate love for God and other people out of yourself from within yourself. Nobody can. So Paul says, Get your roots down deep. Get your roots down deep in your union with Christ. Abide in him. Keep looking at his glorious face and you will be transformed. You will be changed. Daily rest and rely on his grace which has been purchased for you on the cross and applied by the spirit, trusting in his power to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so when you pan the camera out a little bit, this isn't just about making resolutions. This is how we live the Christian life. That we can't do it on our own. 
We need Christ. So this year, if you want to live a life that makes much of Jesus, and I hope you do, if you want to get down in the pit with people, as we talk about here, you want to get down in the pit with people here in our own church who are suffering and sad, and you want to walk through the darkness with them and cast a light, and if you want to share the gospel with your neighbors, if you want to be more sacrificial with your time and resources, if you want to experience what the psalmist says about God's word, that it's like honey in your mouth, and more satisfying than all the things that money can buy, if you want to serve your wife and love her well and love your family well, if you want to set aside time for more consistent prayer, don't think that you can will yourself to do it. Plan, yes. Put strategies in place, yes. Be purposeful, resolve with all your might, but you can't give yourself more faith or more love or more hope, but you know the person who can give you those things and can change you from the inside out, and that's what Paul is telling us to do. Put plans in place. Be intentional about loving specific people in your life. Determine how much money you want to give away. Resolve, but do it not by relying on your own strength and your own ability, but by relying on his grace through faith and his power on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Brothers and sisters, that is the only way. In other words, use all the means of grace. Like reading the Bible or being in Christian community or observing the sacraments and corporate worship to get your roots down deeper into gospel soil so that more gospel fruit springs out of your life for the glory of God and the good of others. And then Paul tells us what the result will be if we live like this. If we make resolutions like this. This is why he's praying for this to happen. Look at verse 12. He says, it's so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. The main goal of your life and mine, every person in this room, every person on the planet, the reason that you and I exist, the reason that we have breath in our lungs this morning is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Think about that. That we would display always imperfectly in this life his infinite worth and beauty by how we live and what we value because what we value, brothers and sisters, drives how we live, that we are what we love. So when the gospel really gets down deep in us and our desires as a result become more and more aimed at his glory being known and enjoyed by us and those around us and we're trusting in him to fulfill them in us, Jesus will be made to look glorious in us. 
because we get the joy of experiencing his power and grace, which leads to praise and ever-growing confidence in him. And people around us who experience our good works that he's completing through us, they too will give him the glory for it. Because here's the thing. Jesus gets the glory when his people rely on him and not on themselves. Jesus gets the glory when he is shown to be sufficient in all of our insufficiencies. He gets the glory when we can give away our possessions and still have joy because we still have him. He gets the glory. Every day as we lean more and more into him, he is making us more and more like himself and we will one day be glorified with him. Here's how I wanna, I wanna end this morning. As, as one of your pastors, I have the privilege of having a front row seat to watch some of the ways in which you love one another how you rally around people who are hurting and suffering or facing a lot of difficulty. I get to see how you meet real tangible needs of people, not only within our own church body, but also in our community. I get to see how your faith and hope in God is growing, even in the midst of a lot of hard things. And some of you are facing a lot of hard things. I get to see how you love the people of Greenville as you serve in different ministries. And I could go on and on. And one of my prayers for myself, as we've looked at, you know, what Paul is praying here, one of my prayers for you as well is that in 2018, that that would happen more and more. That those things would be more apparent and more abundant as we treasure the gospel together this year as we are captivated by and we marvel at the glory of Jesus together this year, that our vision as a church of every avenue of downtown Greenville connected with the good news and loved well would be closer to being fulfilled this time next year because we are looking to God to fulfill our every resolve for good and every work of faith by relying not on our own strength, but by relying on his grace through faith in his power for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. And I'm praying that God would make that so here among us and in our city. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do want to treasure the gospel. And you know, God, that we struggle to do that. We want to love Jesus and we struggle to do that. God, I pray that you would help us to get our roots down deeper into our union with Christ, that we would bear more and more gospel fruit in relationships and work, every aspect of our life. I pray that you would save us from thinking that we can save ourselves, that we can just do enough good, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and think that we've somehow merited some kind of kindness from you. God, I pray that you'd help us to rest more 
in what Christ has done for us and that it would free us, it would compel us to love others. God, I pray that you would be at work here at Downtown Presbyterian Church this year, that we would have more faith, that we'd have more love, that we would have more hope, and that Christ would get more glory as we look to him. We pray in his name, amen.